I'm Persia, and this is Eleven Again. Eleven Again is a show about revisiting the things that people were obsessed with as kids. The people, in this sense, are my friends and family, whoever is unlucky enough to be tapped to expose themselves on a podcast. Once I choose a victim, I ask them to pick something from their childhood that had a really big impact on them, something that maybe they revisited a lot, or something that just sticks really strongly in their memory. The show is set up so that you, the listener, don't need to have that much knowledge about the thing we're talking about. We explain everything you need to know, but if you want to, of course, you can read or watch or play along. Today is a very special episode because Eleven Again is going on hiatus. I'm taking a summer break. And to cap off this first season of Eleven Again, I brought on a very special guest, Stephen Hilger, to talk about something that both he and I love, which is The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster. Did your parents read to you a lot? That's a great question. I don't think they did. At the very least, if they did, it was at an age where I like have no memories of it. Oh, really? Yeah. I do remember being at a friend's house and like being a little bit too old for that to happen. It was a sleepover and his mom read to the both of us. And I think she actually read Cats. I think she read like the book of poetry Cats. Oh my God. Like the original. The original yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. The original work <laughs> of Cats. I imagine they probably did when we were like really young, but like not in the formative years. Although like books are a big deal, but like it wasn't a shared thing really. Yeah. It was more like a try this one out and then, you know, leave it in the dark. I think my parents' foundational belief in child rearing is is like read to your kids before bed every night or and even maybe during the day and like on on off hours. Yeah. It's a good practice, I think. I definitely think it's, like, a fun shared experience, especially for, like, a really young kid who maybe can't read yet, you know? Right. But it also could be, like, my pediatrician told them that milk was good once, and now we have, like, a whole economy based (laughs) off of milk subsidies. (laughs) I love the turn this took. Did your parents read to you? What's your thoughts on big milk? How long do you think children actually need to be drinking milk? Or is it a propaganda machine? Definitely propaganda. I think we're, we're the only mammals that drink other animals' milk, right? Yeah. Humans? There's a yeah. word for it. I forgot, though. <laughs> Corporate sellout. <laughs> anyway, I... <laughs> I guess I, I was wondering because I... Wanted to know if you were reading Phantom Tollbooth alone or if it was something that was read to you. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also interesting because my older sister is a writer and has like had a really strong interest in both reading and writing from a very young age. And my my whole family, really, but my sister Lauren especially. So like again, there was definitely like a big exchange of books. Like books were a common gift. But it was it was more of a singular thing. I don't know how I found Phantom Tollbooth. It might have been at like a book fair or something. And I definitely think it's no coincidence that I was so drawn to it, given my my interest in like il- illustration and drawing and stuff. And I think that I do remember the like weird surreal like pen. It's like a very scratchy style that I think at the time probably looked exactly like my own drawings at that age. <laughs> Maybe my sister read it, but I remember talking to my parents about it. Because I remember one thing we did a lot was my dad and I would watch movies together a lot because my parents were divorced and every other weekend I was with my dad or mom. And uh, whenever I was with my dad, he had like a very 
firmly set schedule for like what we were watching and like when we were really young he would try to show us a lot of movies he considered classics we watched like a lot of the like hitchcock stuff and a lot of like you know just like the old kind of classic film but uh we also watched weirdly like a ton of like really cheesy 60s sci-fi and i remember we watched fahrenheit 451 um, which is a great book and it's like a really bad movie uh and i don't remember this in the book but in the movie at the very end uh because the whole premise of that obviously is they're like burning books and at the end there is this like village of people who live in the forest that each person has memorized a book and that's like They've even though the books are all, you know, ashes, they have like carried those stories on by remembering them. And I remember being asked by either my dad or stepmom, like, if you were a Fahrenheit four fifty one book person, which book would you have memorized? <laughs> and I said Phantom Tollbooth. So that that's like the closest we came to reading it together, I think. Was if you were a a Ray Bradburyan book person, what would you remember? And it was a uh, it was Norton's Tollbooth. And how old were you? Uh, when I read Phantom Tollbooth or when I was asked that question? When, I, when you were asked that question, actually. Uh, I think 11, like 11 or 12. Like definitely like the latter part of middle school. Because that was also when I was watching the most like weird sci-fi. Like I was really into Planet of the Apes and um, that kind of like 60s, 70s era stuff. Do you remember thinking why you liked Phantom Tollbooth so much? Um, I think it was because I think that I was really drawn to like genre as a kid and I especially loved fantasy. And I think there was something about the fantasy of Phantom Tillboot that was like a little bit like it was definitely like very rolled doll as we've talked about in terms of like the themes that are being explored. And it was very like it had like a very um, free flowing like childlike imagination quality to it but it also had this sort of like little bit of like D tolkien stuff with like the kingdoms and everything so i think it was like this really nice hybrid of a fantasy story that i like hadn't really experienced before but had like the bits and pieces of stuff i liked because i i liked tolkien but i never really like loved it the same way i gravitate towards other stories and I think I just found the, like, world of Phantom Tollbooth really, really cool. And, like, I think it had that, that kind of adventure, that, that, like, call to adventure that a lot of, like, kids' stories didn't have the same, to the same degree. Did you read it over and over again? Or did you just read it once or twice and you were like, this is my favorite book of the moment? <laughs> I definitely read it more than once. I think I read it twice on my own and then we had to read it in sixth grade in school. And at that point, I, I had, you know, become a book person for that book. I already knew it. I'd memorized it. I didn't commit to that because I don't remember anything anymore. <laughs> but at that time, I was the pro of the toll booth. In case anything goes wrong, I have to commit this book <laughs> Yeah, to in memory. case the firemen show up and burn our libraries, I've got toll booth. Don't worry. I've got toll booth. You figure yeah. something else out. I've got toll Someone booth. else needs Catcher in the Rye. I got toll booth. <laughs> Just in terms of books they make you read. Yeah. Do you remember like a specific scene? Because I do think of the book in in scenes almost. You know, it's very like yeah, first they're totally. here, then they're there. They're you know, it's very like heavily character based and location based in my mind. Absolutely. I mean, I think the big one is the doldrums, which like came up when we were uh, doing our Matilda episode. 
that's like a concept that has stuck with me. And it's also the first place they go. I, I believe what happens is Milo is like kind of a bored, I guess, teenager, maybe younger. Uh, but he's like a bored kid. And he, he gets this toll booth one day. It's very like Alice in Wonderland where he ends up somewhere else. But like, I remember like distinctly that the adventure starts. He like gets in this like little car and gets into this big fantasy world. And it's like, it's so early in the vent- in the adventure and there's so little known about this world that like the first instinct is just to like chill and not do anything. <laughs> um, and the doldrums being this kind of like magical purgatory was like really fascinating and like the danger of that, but also the appeal of it. As he drove along the peaceful highway, he soon fell to daydreaming and paid less and less attention to where he was going. In a short time, he wasn't paying any attention at all. And that is why at a fork in the road, when a sign pointed to the left, Milo went to the right, along a route which looked suspiciously like the wrong way. Things began to change as soon as he left the main highway. The sky became quite gray, and along with it, the whole countryside seemed to lose its color and assume the same monotonous tone. Everything was quiet, and even the air hung heavily. The birds sang only gray songs, and the road wound back and forth in an endless series of climbing curves. And that's also, I think, where they meet the watchdog, which is like the first friend that's recruited which is this dog with a watch on it that like is almost like the cerberus of the doldrums so like that place has just stuck with me in a big way like you said it's it's a story defined by moments there isn't like that i think they have to save somebody or something i don't even remember what the critical path was because it really is like so episodic in that way everyone keeps telling milo that there's like a secret about his adventure that he can't know until it's over and they tell him at the end that what he was doing was impossible, but he couldn't have known that because then he wouldn't have had the confidence to try. That has stuck with me, too. I love that message. It's very corny, but it's just like it, it had a lot of payoff. You know, they kept mentioning that, and I think it worked. Yeah. I do wonder about how educational the book is because it, it it's funny. The thing that really ignited my interest in talking to you about it is because the doldrums for me also sticks in my mind really, really heavily. Yeah. And I haven't read this book in years and years and years, and it wasn't like particularly a huge book for me as a kid. If anything, I think I read it a little bit older. Mm. And so I was, I remember sort of reading it and being like, thinking sort of like, this is a great book for kids, even though yeah. I, I was probably like 13 <laughs> or something, you know? Right. But I mean, I, I think it really is like those years make a huge difference, you know? Yeah. And I think that's pro- if I had to guess, it's probably how I will feel rereading it, you know, like, OK, but <laughs> but uh, either way, um, yeah, th- those I think you were saying the doldrums stuck with you when you even when you read it as an older like kid. Yeah, I just think it, I really do. I mean, there are some things like you said that stick with you for a reason. And I really do like believe in the doldrums. Like I really understand. the <laughs> I- Like I understand the idea. And for me, I always think about it in terms of like energy Like Mm. when you start to lose energy and feel tired and then you don't want to do anything and so you feel more tired and then you're sitting down and because you're like laying down then you don't have the energy to get back up. And like that, it just feels so realistic to me and I feel like maybe you don't fall into the doldrums as much when you're a kid or at least that was my experience as a kid. But I feel like as an adult, I completely see, you know, days where I'm like, oh, I don't feel well. I don't want to do anything. And then you like you just slowly, like slowly, slowly sink into the ground. 
or you have something on like your to-do list that like you know i i found often when like if i'm putting something off like a creative project or some kind of thing i want to do the longer i put it off like the more guilt and the more uncertainty builds up but then when i finally do it i'm like happy and enjoying it <laughs> like you know it's like once you finally take a step out you realize you didn't have to be there it's it's a totally yeah. it's a uh, made up place literally and at the same time, I think there's another side of the doldrums where I think that, like, we're all conditioned to feel like we're not doing enough all the time. So I think that there is, like, I always am a big proponent of, like, give yourself permission just to, like, chill and, like, not have to always be creating. But I do think you're right. I do think as you get older, the doldrums is, like, the fog of it grows and the lull of it is stronger. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally agree with that because I think I'm, in general, sort of a busybody. Like, I like to fill my time. Yeah. And I think it's because in some ways I'm like, I'm scared of the doldrum or I'm scared yeah. of like falling into the doldrums. And a lot of times my partner, Brendan, will be like, sit down. This doesn't need to happen right now. You're tired. I can tell that you're tired. Just sit down, relax. And I'm like, if I stop moving, I'll never move again. <laughs> and that's the other thing, too, because I, I remember the inhabitants of the doldrums are like little gnomes. <laughs> Yeah, they're really cute. That are, like, pretty happy to be there. Like, that's the thing. That's the kind of disturbing thing about it is, like, no one's, like, sad to be there. But it's clearly, like, void of meaning. I wonder where I am, said Milo in a very worried tone. You're in the doldrums, wailed a voice that sounded far away. He looked around quickly to see who had spoken. No one was there, and it was as quiet and still as one could imagine. Yes, the doldrums, yawned another voice, but still he saw no one. What are the doldrums, he cried loudly, and tried very hard to see who would answer this time. The doldrums, my young friend, are where nothing ever happens, and nothing ever changes. This time the voice came from so close that Milo jumped with surprise, for sitting on his right shoulder, so lightly that he hardly noticed, was a small creature exactly the color of his shirt. Allow me to introduce all of us, the creature went on. We are the Lathargarians at your service. Again, I, I agree with Brennan where it's like, you know, <laughs> giving yourself permission to relax is not stepping into the doldrums <laughs> but it's hard to distinguish the two especially as an adult yeah i'm just i'm scared of the doldrums <laughs> and their indigenous gnome population <laughs> <laughs> yeah the gnomes that live in the doldrums look out for them they're up to something <laughs> but i do like that they're they're creatures of you know they're creatures of the doldrums they're they're part of it yeah and i think going back to like just the appeal of the book i just loved like I think as a kid, too, like, I drew a lot in my notebook. I mean, not even just as a kid. Like, I remember I was going through, like, all these old, like, folders and, like, throwing out a bunch of stuff. And I found, like, a lot of my college notebooks. And they were just full of drawings. Like, really disturbing drawings. Like, I could tell if I liked the class or not. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, nothing, uh, nothing horrific. <laughs> but I remember I found this, like, weird muffin with eyes that was just, like, <laughs> screaming at the sky. <laughs> uh you know, when you're just in class and you're letting your unconscious flow, some weird stuff happens. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, d I just liked kind of making characters and like 
not really thinking about plot as much as just like letting my unconscious like drive these creations like uh, especially as a young kid like i would have like notebooks full of different characters and like i would make comics but they really were just like characters introducing themselves <laughs> which is very funny so i think there's also that angle to the phantom toll booth of like the a plot being second to like just the event itself which i gravitated towards yeah and especially like you said sort of creating these these kooky characters like, isn't there, like, a guy with, like, a body that's, like, a either his, like, heads switch out or, like, his he has different sides to him? You read my mind. The dodecahedron. The dodecahedron. Yes. So, for an example of a disturbing Stephen <laughs> College drawing, very dodecahedron-esque. <laughs> I love, like, weird faces and yeah. shapes. Uh, I guess that was my blue period. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, the dodecahedron definitely stuck with me as well he was like a like a 20-sided dice person given life basically yeah (laughs) i don't even remember what he did i literally think he might just be like i'm the dodecahedron i'm a shape with faces and like walked away (laughs) he's like i'm the dodecahedron you know he's like the he's like the the highway man like that's how i imagine him (laughs) yes oh my god perfect yeah absolutely We're, we're trying to get to i'm the highway man Okay, good to know. Well, so you see... I'm the highway man. I make ends meet just like any man. I work with my hands. If you cross my path, I'll knock you out of the road. Steal your shoes from off your feet. I'm the highway man when I make ends meet. Because the trio, it was Milo, the watchdog, who we love, and the humbug, oh, yeah. who was kind of like a troublemaker. <laughs> he he looked sort of like a, he had a cane, kind of like a uppity yeah. character. I don't remember what his personality was like, other than like, he was yeah, fancy. Yeah, that's so funny, because that reminds me of Alice in Wonderland again. Isn't yeah. Isn't there like a fancy walrus or something, when they're like dancing around the island? <laughs> I feel like there are some characters in that book that were probably like political satire at the time of someone like no one remembers. <laughs> you know, I think you're like, really right about that. Yeah, like Baha, the log law of twelve hundred. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, really I know funny. they're always worried about tariffs. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, oh my god, there's definitely a lot of Alice in Wonderland influence here as well, um, and I think I still like that kind of fantasy. I think, I mean. One of my favorite movies is Spirited Away, which I think shares a lot of just that kind of unconscious, like driving the whole thing. Like that movie feels so dreamlike. And I think I remember this book feeling like a dream too. I think that's why I liked rereading it is because I just liked revisiting these characters and these like ideas. There were a lot of really clever ideas in the book. And I think like it seemed like the incentive for the story was more just to like play around with these concepts and these point of views over like, we got to save the day. Right. <laughs> I mean, my memory of the book is that they sort of make it unclear whether the events actually happen or not. Yeah. I, re- I remember hearing about there being an animated movie that like concretely was like, it was all a dream, which yeah. just sucks. But I am also equally annoyed when it's ambiguous, you know? <laughs> um, it's like, just say if it happened or not. Don't like leave a clue that oh maybe yeah exactly yeah they always do like and then he woke up but something in his room had changed (laughs) but the humbug was in his pocket (laughs) yeah uh yeah i um i don't really remember the ending i also never fully understood like 
like he gets a toll booth and like puts it in his room and drives through it. Very bizarre, like concept of like being given. A I was toll just booth. thinking about that actually. So like, yeah. the toll booth is like, the, <laughs> is like the fucking easy pass. Like that's yeah. what a toll booth is. He gets in a car and he's like, "Time to pay the tolls for the highway so they can yeah. keep it up." I remember having a very hard time like figuring out what even a toll booth was. I don't think I like, like concretely yeah. thought about what a toll booth was until this very moment. I don't think it like really mattered to me at all. And how it like led into another world and like he's a little little car. What? Back to the tariffs. These are what our taxes are doing. <laughs> yeah. I now I now think this book is again very specific, like nineteen ninety six political <laughs> satire about some like Floridian governor with a, a toll booth tax. <laughs> This is like, uh, I'm excited to do this episode with you because with Matilda, I had kind of like a a sort of like, I, I kind of, ex- uh, there was still a lot of uncertainty of how I would feel about the movie, but it, I like remembered enough of it to like kind of know how I would enjoy it. But this is like way more open. Like even as we're trying to like piece together why I like the book and like what I remember about it, I really feel like anything goes when we reread this <laughs> and I'm kind of scared because I don't know if it's going to be good. <laughs> I honestly can't imagine it not being good. I, I I appreciate you saying that. I think at the very least we will have the like, oh, this is fun for kids, and like that's great. If that's the if that's the reaction I have, that's wonderful because that's exactly what it was for me. There was once a boy named Milo who didn't know what to do with himself. Not just sometimes, but always. When he was in school, he longed to be out, and when he was out, he longed to be in. On the way, he thought about coming home, and coming home, he thought about going. Wherever he was, he wished he were somewhere else, and when he got there, he wondered why he had bothered. Nothing really interested him, least of all the things that should have. It seems to me that almost everything is a waste of time, he remarked one day as he walked dejectedly home from school. I can't see the point in learning to solve useless problems, or subtracting turnips from turnips, or knowing where Ethiopia is, or how to spell February. And since no one bothered to explain otherwise, he regarded the process of seeking knowledge as the greatest waste of time of all. As he and his unhappy thoughts hurried along, for while he was never anxious to be where he was going, he liked to get there as quickly as possible. It seemed a great wonder that the world, which was so large, could sometimes feel so small and empty. And worst of all, he continued sadly, there's nothing for me to do, nowhere I'd care to go, and hardly anything worth seeing. He punctuated this last thought with such a deep sigh that a house sparrow singing nearby stopped and rushed home to be with his family. I I, I think overall, so now that I've reread it, I have a lot of thoughts about this book. <laughs> so, so top level thoughts, I, I guess just to kind of help me frame my own thoughts here. I think it's a really lovely book, and I think it's something I'll probably want to share with my kids. I kept thinking when I had them one day, uh, I kept thinking about when you asked me if like my parents read to me as a kid, and I just kept thinking about how this would be such a good book to like share with someone because it has such like a theatrical vibe to it. So much of it is like presentational in that way. So I think it's a good work and I think it has really lovely moments and I can totally see why it stuck with me and I could see the influence it's had on me. Like I love all the regality and like I love confused monarchs as I think yeah. I think I said that exact phrase with Matilda. <laughs> and and there's a direct line between like 
the Trunchbull and like the weird kings and the Spook oh, yes. and like the humbug. But all that to say, I think that like, and I'm sure you encounter this a lot doing the show, where I think that there's a lot of media that we may connect with as kids and then we revisit it and we're like, this is just a good work that like is probably geared towards a younger audience, but you can engage with it at any time and still enjoy it. Like I think of the Ghibli work as being like the pinnacle example of that. Whereas I do think Phantom Tollbooth is like specifically for kids and I don't think it's as enjoyable as an adult. That's like my top level thought, but I do think it's important to have books that are written this way because I think that like, the the mission of this book as evidenced by milo's whole deal and how he changes through the course of the book is like to show the wonders of learning to a child i think that was my top line thought is that this book feels like it has a mission yeah and the mission is to be like this is why you're learning things in school yeah (laughs) right which makes sense that we read it in sixth grade yeah yeah because You spend so much time in school, like literally your entire first quarter of your life. But, you know, you're spending all this time doing this thing and you're like, literally, why? Yeah, right. I I think that Milo, even though Milo's kind of condition in the beginning is exaggerated, you know, his complete apathy. I do remember hearing that so often as a kid and thinking it. It's like, why am I learning about this era of history or like this? You know, why am I learning about gerunds? Will I ever learn use gerunds again? And I think that, like, I, I forgot the exact, like, philosophical phrase for it, but the idea of, like, learning for learning's sake is, like, clearly the vibe of this book. And I think what's really nice is that I really loved the finale. I thought that was the best part of the book. Like, there was a certain point where I was getting a little bit tired of it. And maybe that's mm. because I've had a busy week and I was, you know, finishing it for the show. But, like, there are, a f- like, you could cut, like, three or four chapters where there's, like, a dancing boy going, like, I have everything and nothing. It's like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's so much of that. Like, And sometimes it's really fun. Like, I love, Dictionopolis is great. I would love to live in Dictionopolis and eat an A. And, like, the idea of eating letters is so fun. And, like, yeah. that whole kingdom was really fun. And the five guards that all say the same thing but find different words for it. That, like, was very funny and, and cool. Obviously, you don't know who we are, sneered the fifth, and they presented themselves one by one as the Duke of Definition, the Minister of Meaning, the Earl of Essence, the Count of Connotation, the Undersecretary of Understanding. Milo acknowledged the introduction, and as talk growled softly, the minister explained, We are the king's advisors, or in more formal terms, his cabinet. Cabinet, recited the duke. One, a small private room or closet, case of drawers, etc., for keeping valuables or displaying curiosities. Two, council room for chief ministers of state. Three, a body of official advisors to the chief executive of a nation. You see, continued the minister, bowing thankfully to the duke. Dictionopolis is the place where all the words in the world come from. They're grown right here in our orchards. I didn't know that words grew on trees, said Milo timidly. There are some characters where I'm like, dude, we fucking get it. Like, okay, <laughs> don't jump to conclusions. Fuck off. Like, you know? like, I don't know. And maybe that's just like as a jaded adult reading a child's book. But like, you know, there are clearly like standout sections. And then there are some that are not as successful, I think. Yeah. Because again, to the point of the book being about learning, every locale that they go to is essentially like a subject right or a play on the definition of a word or a play on a phrase 
That's a great observation. Yeah. And I, and I think the subjects are way more successful if you want to like categorize them in that way. Right. Because the, you can only do so much with the definition of a word or a play on a word. Yeah. Or a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm still thinking about that. I guess what I really wanted and what I missed this time was like, I like the trio of Milo and Tak in the Humbug so much, but we don't really see them interact at all. You know, so like, it's kind of us, it's kind of up to us to fill in the blanks. Like, they have some great moments. I think, like, I loved, loved the conductor who brings color into the world. And, like, that was a beautiful part. Yeah, that, it, it's stunning. It's such a cool, vi- that could have been its own little short story and I would have, like, yeah. brought it to the show. Cause, like, there's some fun details there where, like, when the conductor retires, he gives it to Milo and, like, uh, just messes up and like the days are passing too fast and like everything's changing color and then the conductor comes back and he's like great job and then it ends like everyone who was awake at that time like wonders what happened to the missing week and like I don't know that stuff I thought was really nice and I think like just made the world feel more interesting um, and I think what I loved about the finale is that Milo you know leaves this place with sort of a newfound appreciation for the world but he can't go back, but realizes that all the things he liked about that place are also in reality. And in a weird way, like my meta read of this book, like reading it now as an adult and finding it like not quite as powerful, but like appreciating the time I had with it is like, I feel like this book is also a one way trip where like you read it when you're a kid and it like gives you this kind of like appreciation for things, but like there's not really a need to go back. Like, other people need this story. You don't need to go back to the toll booth. Oh, that's interesting. You think it's like effective as a one-time read, essentially. I think so, yeah, because I don't think there's really, like uh, like a lot of allegorical stories, there's not really much deeper than the surface. You know, everything is kind of forecasting its meaning, like, in your face, <laughs> uh, for better and for worse. And um, I did love revisiting the art, but I don't think I had the same kind of, like, broadened perspective that I had as like a kid you know because inherently I think that like this book is for kids like Milo I didn't have like an uninterest in the world but I definitely feel like you know I wondered what the value in certain things were and I think it's it's a really like positive message to to give young people I think so you did feel like you had some some ennui (laughs) yeah that this book addressed I think so yeah I, I think um I mean I'm trying to remember where I was at like when I was a kid I mean I think like As a kid, and I think even now, I was the kind of student who, like, excelled at what interests me, but, like, completely did not care about things that didn't. Like, you know, I've always been more into, like, I would have been on King Azaz's team. Like, I was way more into English and history and, you know, theater than, like, math and science. But then I realized I was just sort of, like, deciding that before I actually gave those things a shot, you know? And then, like... When I got to high school, when you get to like actually choose different sciences that aren't just science in quotes, and you, it's like, okay, well, does that mean chemistry? Does it mean physics? Like, there's a lot of different sciences, Stephen. Why don't you go to the city of science? Hello, I am chemistry. <laughs> oh, you can call me Adam. Uh, uh, <laughs> See, I, I think it was, um, I think it was cool, and I think also like. It's weird, too, because I've always been a pretty extroverted person, but I spent, like, a lot of time in my room, like, kind of, like, buried in my drawings or, like, engaging in different things. Like, as a kid, like, I I had, you know, like, when I was around people, I, I had extroverted tendencies, but I think I, like, always gravitated towards, like, introverted hobbies. 
So I think the idea of like escaping into a world like kind of akin to like Alice in Wonderland has always sort of had an appeal to me. Not that I'm like, you know, I was hiding from anything, but I just like, I remember distinctly there was one Christmas morning where my family was calling down for me and I was like, I'm good. I'm having like such a good time in my room right now with my action figures. And I'm like in the middle of something very important, mom. So like, I think there are stories that kind of hit that unconscious, like that collective unconscious. I I think Spirit Away is another one where it's like, this is so unique but also like very similar to sort of like the dream like escapes we all have as children i i feel very much the same that i feel like i spent a good amount of time alone playing alone as a kid especially because i i have all brothers and when i was a kid they were all older than me yeah so they weren't like yeah i'll play with you and your horses Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had like a very, I had like a collection of you know mismatched toys, which I feel like everyone, every kid has. Oh, totally. Yeah. And they all, it was very you know Toy Story. They all had like personalities and like relationships with each other. And I would, they were always having councils, is what I remember. I would always like set them up in a circle and be like, now we're talking about an issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember the types of stories I had. I was kind of like the chaotic good version of Sid from Toy Story, where like I definitely did like. <laughs> mess with the toys to make them how I wanted to look. So I remember I loved the street sharks figures, but I wanted them to be aliens instead of sharks. So I took off their fins <laughs> and we're like, no, 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 they're from Mars now. Um, which is so silly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, very similar. Like I loved kind of like engaging in this almost like plays, you know, with figurines, which is really like we were playing single player D and D essentially. Like once I figured out what D and D was as an adult, I'm like, oh my god, you should have called me when I was eight, man. I was doing that <laughs> shit without a rule book. Come on, you can do this with other people. You can, do, you can hang out with other people. You can go downstairs on Christmas Day. Yeah, well, what did you think? Like, what was? I know we talked about like kind of our associations with it, but like as a work, like what did you think this time around? I think I really did love it. A couple things really f- fermented for me which were or it brought me back to the time where play on words was like the funniest thing you could possibly do yeah right everything in the book is who's on first right yes it just it gives such strong like we're british and we think that if you yes. can't play on words that you're not a humorist yeah it's like oh i'm sorry am i too witty for you peasant <laughs> No, I, I get it, Norton. I get it. I get what you're trying to do. But overall, yeah, I mean, it's it's lovely. Like, it, it has a really good start and a really good finish, um, which is, I think, important for any work. And, you know, I, I think that what's nice is that, like, because there are so many different kind of, like, vignettes, I think everyone who reads this book as a kid will, like, walk away with, like, a different... Like, you and I both really attached to the doldrums, which yeah. was different than I remembered. I didn't remember that they were little, that they kind of just, like, <laughs> sleep on your shoulder, and they're like, ooh, don't think. You can't think here. Um, <laughs> Are <laughs> they German? Welcome to the doldrums. You can't think here. No one else can think. You can't think. Ooh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And I really liked the scene with the princesses. Like, Rhyme and Reason's conversation with Milo, I thought were, like, nice. And I I don't know. I I always love moments of doubt in a story. Like, I think, like, that has the potential of really being the heart of, like, an adventure like this, where it's like, what is the moment 
where the characters like think it's impossible. You know, I always think of um, the two towers with Sam giving the monologue to Frodo. And uh, I think about in tarot, the card, the star is kind of implying that like, it's right after the tower, which is like a very usually negative uh, card. It's like the tower of Babel being destroyed by lightning and the stars right after. And it's sort of, you know, one read of it is like, it's a glimmer of hope, but the other one is like, oh my God, we've been doing this adventure for this long and our goal is still this far away. Like, how am I going to do this? So like the star in tarot, how I read it is it's whatever you have to tell yourself to keep going. And I think that is the moment here with uh, pure reason and sweet rhyme. <laughs> uh, I think that's what they're called, right? But yeah, they're just like very chill. They're just like, yeah, like don't give yeah. up. Um, I liked it. It was cool. I actually, you, I think, were struck by the lack of plot. I actually had forgotten that there was even a loose plot at all. <laughs> Which is, yeah. just to quickly recap, Milo is essentially on a quest. You know, he's he's sent yeah. questing. And it's very much like he gets items to like help him on his quest. And he learns along the way. And he has to solve you know, riddles, and he has to get past obstacles. And the whole idea is that the kingdom is sort of torn apart by these these two feuding kings. When the boys grew to young manhood, the king called them to him and said, I am becoming an old man and can no longer go forth to battle. You must take my place and found new cities in the wilderness, for the kingdom of wisdom must grow. And so they did. One went south to the foothills of confusion and built Dictionopolis, the city of words, and one went north to the mountains of ignorance and built Digitopolis, the city of numbers. The two brothers were glad, however, to go their separate ways, for they were by nature very suspicious and jealous. Words are more important than wisdom, said one privately. Numbers are more important than wisdom, thought the other to himself, and they grew to dislike each other more and more. The old king, however, who knew nothing of his son's animosity, was very happy in the twilight of his reign, and spent his days quietly walking and contemplating in the royal gardens. His only regret was that he had never had a daughter. One day as he was strolling peacefully about the grounds, he discovered two tiny babies that had been abandoned in a basket under the grape arbor. They were beautiful golden-haired girls. We'll call this one rhyme and this one reason, he said. So they became the princess of sweet rhyme and the princess of pure reason, and were brought up in the palace. When the old king finally died, the kingdom was divided between his two sons, with the provision that they would be equally responsible for the welfare of the young princesses. One son went south and became Azaz the Unabridged, king of Dictionopolis, and the other went north and became the Mathemagician, ruler of Digitopolis. And true to their words, they both provided well for the little girls who continued to live in wisdom. Everyone loved the princesses because of their great beauty, their gentle ways, and their ability to settle all controversies fairly and reasonably. People with problems or grievances or arguments came from all over the land to seek advice, and even the two brothers, who by this time were fighting continuously, often called upon them to help decide matters of state. As the years passed, the two brothers grew farther and farther apart, and their separate kingdoms became richer and grander. Their disputes, however, became more and more difficult to reconcile, but always, with patience and love, the princesses set things right. 
Then one day they had the most terrible quarrel of all. King Azaz insisted that words were far more significant than numbers, and hence his kingdom was truly the greater. And the mathematician claimed that numbers were much more important than words, and hence his kingdom was supreme. They discussed and debated and raved and ranted until they were on the verge of blows, when it was decided to submit the question to arbitration by the princesses. After days of careful consideration in which all the evidence was weighed and all the witnesses heard, they made their decision. Words and numbers are of equal value, for in the cloak of knowledge, one is warp and the other woof. It is no more important to count the sands than it is to name the stars. Therefore, let both kingdoms live in peace. Everyone was pleased with the verdict. Everyone, that is, but the brothers, who were beside themselves with anger. What good are these girls if they cannot settle an argument in someone's favor, they growled, since both were more interested in their own advantage than in the truth. We'll banish them from the kingdom forever. And so they were taken from the palace and sent far away to the castle in the air, and they have not been seen since. That is why today, in all this land, there is neither rhyme nor reason. And Milo has to just go find them and bring them back. Yeah, and, and I think the the thing that landed for me is just sort of like the arc of Milo, you know, like the ending of him, like, you know, bummed that he can't make another trip. And there's a letter he gets that I thought was very sweet that's like, thanks for making the trip. Like, uh, we have taken this tollbooth from you because, like, there are a lot of other boys and girls who need to take this. And so when he's leaving the kingdom, everyone's like, it's, you know, they're celebrating, Ram and Reason are back. And then as Milo's driving away, the kings start bickering again. So in my head, I'm like, is this just like on loop where like Milo leaves and they they get back in the same feud and the next kid has to bring back Ram and Reason? Oh. Yeah, they're like, well, back to ignorance, I guess. Uh, at least we can hang out with the weird guy covered in ink. <laughs> My brain, like, dis- I don't even know, like, what their name was. I just sort of, like, dissociated at, at that point in the book. Where, like, they're like, hello, I'm busy. Like, I'm covered in ink. I think the other thing that really impressed me, did you ever play um, Pajama Sam? Yes. I don't remember much, but I definitely did. I had those computer games, yeah. The one I had was Pajama Sam 2, Thunder and Lightning Aren't So Frightening. I love that. It's a great subtitle. It's essentially he gets there's there's a storm, there's a bad storm one night and he gets really scared. And I don't know, it's probably like a dream is what they're telling you, you know, actually happened. But in his dream or whatever it is, he goes and he meets thunder and lightning. And they're people that like live in a like a weather tower and control the weather. And the weather's gone berserk and he has to help them fix it. And it's it's like a factory. So the idea is that thunder and lightning are people and they make weather in a weather factory. And I think the whole idea behind that sort of content is to, you know, demystify these things for kids and help them not be scared of them and just be like, it's two people in a factory up in the sky. (laughs) Just like, you know, making this stuff on a freaking conveyor belt and and shooting it down to us. And this book also, you know, not only did it feel like sort of pandering to kids in the way that we're trying to explain to them why they have to learn how to spell and learn how to do math and, and X, Y, and Z. It did in some ways feel like a grand mythological story. Yeah. Because there's some, there's a lot of stuff that's like, this is where numbers come from. Oh, the the place where there's no sound. That's a cool one. With the awful din 
I liked him yes, a lot. Yes, yeah. the awful din. So yeah. there's they essentially explain like where bad sounds come from, bad sounds, and where good sounds come from and how they're used. They she has like a filing cabinet. She has like a vault full of sounds. Yeah. And they're like, where did you think the sounds come from? And similarly to the the colors, the color orchestra. Yeah. You know, they're like, what you think colors just exist? No, we we make them <laughs> with our instruments. Oh man, that I I, I really liked I really liked that. Me too. And that's something that I, I, I remember really attaching to because I always like loved mythology and like studying Greek mythology. And there are elements of this book that really feel like they are making almost like a weird kind of like earthbound-esque kind of world where it's like it's, you know, modern day suburban, but has this like weird angle of fantasy. I kind of wanted more of that um, and how like z's aren't as common as a's because they taste bad it's such, a, such like a funny thing to throw into a story or that uh faintly macabre she has a like a snack pack of exclamation points <laughs> which like i just assume were like fried and sweet in some way that is like donuts <laughs> i love to imagine what what letters and words taste right like. and that and that's the thing that's so encouraging about this story is that stuff that is so much better than the play on words stuff i think yeah i Sorry, I just ate a sunflower seed. No, it's cool. I'm I'm snacking on A's right now. <laughs> Sorry, that's so They're salty and crunchy Ooh, and full of fiber. Vowels are delicious. Have you tried an E? The other thing that I was interested in that felt like a take. Yeah, let's say like there's the mythological stuff. There's the play on word. And then there was also sort of this... I was getting a little bit of the... I don't like the way the world has changed mm. vibe from the writer at times, because especially when they go, uh, I'm forgetting what it's called. But they go to a town. It's called like illusion. Oh yeah. Where everyone looks at their feet and the town has disappeared. There's a town that no one lives in. And then there's a bunch of people that live in a town that doesn't exist because they like didn't pay attention to it and it just disappeared. I don't know. Something about that I was like, okay, like you think the same thing with the bad noises, actually. They were like, oh, you know, people like bad noises these days or something, or people have have stopped appreciating good noises because they all live in cities and they all work jobs and they're like too busy <laughs> to like look up and notice things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I didn't pick up on that when I was reading it, but I definitely think there's an angle of like a just sort of like the, the, the pitfall of getting older, I guess, where like you think that things are inherently worse than they were. Yes. I think, like, especially, I'm sure you experienced this on the show, like, we inherently are more closely tied to, like, the media we consume when we're, like, growing up and, you know, in our formative years. But I think it's, like, I always get a little bit, like, cautious around people who are, like, oh, yeah, like, I stopped watching new movies or I stopped listening to new music or whatever. Because, like, while you can definitely prefer older music, I think, like, the minute you pretend that nothing of substance has come out since you're kind of cutting yourself off from reality. Literally. It's like, ironically, I think by taking the stance, he is the author is doing that himself where like, if he's deciding that like no one knows how to like fully appreciate the sounds I like, which I don't think he's like outwardly saying that, but I do think there's sort of like an unconscious bias there for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't right. I don't know how much I would extrapolate it to to a to a big big sense i don't know the guy yeah right i don't personally know the guy but i you know it does sort of feel like oh the world's gone to shit because we don't have rhyme or reason or you know people have lost the ability to play on words yeah 
I think the intention was probably more like, here's who Milo could grow into if he doesn't look at the world around him. You know, like if he, right. if he, if he really thinks that there's nothing of value, then like the world will actually lose value because of that. You know, he he will he will the secret the world into the doldrums. Uh, <laughs> what a sentence! I feel like I just got like a Scrabble point from that. Uh, <laughs> But but overall, I think the message is pretty objectively positive, despite like that that moment. Definitely, I think is the most uh, open to interpretation. Yeah, because I think the rest of the book is like the journey is the point, you know. Right. It's not the destination that matters. It's the it's the weird friends you make along the way. <laughs> Dude, it's the humbug and the watchdog, man. <laughs> it's the dodecahedron and the kid who grows downwards instead of upwards. The dodecahedron has like maybe the most wild design is like the most boring character too. Like he shows up and he's like, I have 12 faces. And he's like, have you had division dumplings? They're actually great. <laughs> you had such an introduction. This is all you got. <laughs> I know. It's so funny that I remembered him and I don't, I, even now I don't really remember what he does. I just, I think his design just like sticks he's, in my head. Yeah. He's just like the steward of the mathematician. <laughs> Also, like, I would so much rather live in Dictionopolis. Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. The number land is like just a mine where you get hungry if you eat. (laughs) I know. I I was like really (laughs) spun around by that idea. They were like, we get hungry when we don't eat anything. And then when we're full, we eat subtractive meals. And Milo was like, what the fuck, dude? (laughs) That's not like cute. That's like messed up <laughs> it's not a personality mathematician <laughs> six subtraction soup asshole <laughs> and you weren't gonna tell me like you see i'm a tourist no it's cool i mean i i actually love his writing and i think it's you know it, there's a lot of fun language and a lot of fun theatrics which is something that i also latched onto and appreciated this time as well like it's inspiring all these voices. It's doing something. But yeah, I'm glad I reread it. It was cool to go back. And I think like my opinion of it hasn't really changed. I just think like I have, I'm in a different place. You know, I, I've, uh, I've it's parked the car. Changed. It's me who's changed. <laughs> Hello, my name is Change. I <laughs> used to be a boy. Now I'm a man. You were saying that you were particularly affected, you think, by the reveal that the journey Milo goes on was impossible the whole time. As the cheering continued, Ryan leaned forward and touched Milo gently on the arm. They're shouting for you, she said with a smile. But I could never have done it, he objected, without everyone else's help. That may be true, said Reason gravely, but you had the courage to try, and what you can do is often simply a matter of what you will do. That's why, said Azaz, there was one very important thing about your quest that we couldn't discuss until you returned. I remember, said Milo eagerly. Tell me now. It was impossible, said the king, looking at the mathematician. Completely impossible, said the mathematician, looking at the king. Do you mean, stammered the bug, who suddenly felt a bit faint. Yes, indeed, they repeated together. But if we told you then, you might not have gone. And, as you've discovered, so many things are possible just as long as you don't know they're impossible. And for the remainder of the ride, Milo didn't utter a sound. That still worked for me. I really liked that reveal because the two kings set it up and, you know, it's revealed so kind of like passively, but like it, like there's a tension to Milo reacting to it. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) you know, like he's so blown away the fact that he did it. And that is one of the few play, like it's, 
similar to a play on word moment, but I don't know. It still really worked for me in the finale. Like, I really love that reveal. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was just thinking sort of things that stayed with you from this book, which I think we talked about the doldrums, but I was wondering if anything else you felt like from that you got from this book has been like reverberating in your brain for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great observation about the, we couldn't tell you this is impossible. Cause I think it sort of, in the book, I think it aids this idea that like the world, both on the other side of the toll booth and in Milo's own reality is infinitely understandable. So like you can never really know everything. And for anyone to tell you what your limits are is arbitrary. Cause I mean, the, the King only knows numbers or letters and they can only communicate literally through that. King of numbers tries to write a letter to the King of letters and it's just numbers, which I thought was funny. But uh, I think like, I don't know, I've always sort of been rebellious in that way in terms of like what structures were broadcasted to me. So like, you know, as a student, like I said, I did okay, but like I also like never really f- was buying. Like I, I was lucky enough to go to a high school that was like very well funded, and like college was like assumed, you know, and and yeah. a lot of people went to really competitive colleges, and uh, that's a great thing. But because of that, I think there was sort of this arbitrary competition. Like I remember in the newspaper, it would like show who was going to what school and everyone was always asking. And I hated that so much. I hated that so much. I hated, you know, being told like, oh, I thought you were smart when I told someone my SAT score. Like, oh my God. Uh, yeah, just bullshit. It's like, all you're just rich. Like you're not smart. Like it's all just <laughs> rich people bullshit. I didn't think that at the time. I think it now. And again, I did okay. And, and I'm, you know, fortunate and privileged in my own right. But like, that was a very tough time for me. And that was a time where I was really questioning, like, if I even wanted to go to school, I, I, when I did go, I ended up leaving and then I went back eventually, but I've always sort of had, you know, ambition and and dreams of like just wanting to do what I want to do in that moment. And it's usually very project based. So like, I've always sort of had this urge to like go against what is like the established route to projected success uh, to varying degrees of success. <laughs> but I just like that is what I associate with like that we couldn't tell you this is impossible because you couldn't do it. And I'm like very proud of the chances I've taken that would have been that. Like when I moved to Chicago, I had zero job lined up. I had no real plan. I had like a few thousand dollars saved up from the year before. And like it worked out. Like I'm still here and I'm doing well. And like I remember that when I'm feeling doubtful. I remember like I parachuted into a new state for no reason and I did okay (laughs) and I encourage other people to do that too because I think we can limit ourselves when we think things are impossible which is a very corny thing to say but like I do think there's a lot of beauty in that thanks for listening by the way I hope I didn't ramble too much there no you you gave me what I wanted (laughs) do the impossible do the unthinkable (laughs) yeah I was Milo when I was 18 I think I think, like, I had a big Milo era when I was, like, a teenager, which was interesting. Because I think Milo's, you know, younger than that in this book. But I think he is going through what a lot of teenagers go through, oddly enough. Yeah. I think I went through it in, like, college, so. Yeah, for sure. And that's what I realized. I think, like, when I was 18 and I was, like, grappling with my own mental health for the first time and felt, like, really alone and I was convincing myself of things that didn't exist – once I started vocalizing those thoughts and sharing them with people, I realized like 
everyone's going through that, you know, and everyone's going through their own version of that. And even though that sounds scary, it's weirdly uniting. And I think like the more vulnerable people are with that side of themselves, the more like we help each other and we can move past that part of ourselves without like ignoring it, but letting it pass through us. I mean, I feel like I came off like kind of negative in this recap. Like I, I definitely really enjoyed my time with the book and I think it was worth revisiting, even though the toll booth is a one way trip. I'm glad I went back, you know? What is it? You can never go home? Is that not a phrase? What? I thought there was a phrase. That's, that sounds so scary. You can never go home. <laughs> when, when do they say that? <laughs> and remember, Milo, <laughs> you can never go home. I was wondering, because I agree with you, this is like one of the most classic instances I've had on 11 Again where I'm like, oh, yeah, I would love to read this to a kid. I would love to like pass along this book. Yeah. Is there something you feel like you would want the book to, to communicate to kids? Like what you think this book, or not what you think it does, but like what you would want it to do? Honestly, I think it just really, like, I, I think, you know, there, there's the direct moral of like the beauty of learning, but I think even more than that, it just encourages creativity. I think it really like, it really, you know, even though there's like a direct explanation in the kind of the mythological way for the state of the universe, the world is so molded by thought you know, as evidenced by the doldrums and illusion and conclusions that like it really kind of uh, unconsciously delivers this idea of that, like the way you see reality is up to you. And like it can be as colorful and beautiful as you want it to be. It can also be as dreary as you want it to be. Uh, there was a line at the end where it was like, everything you do matters. Like, a drop of sand makes the earth weigh a little bit more. Whenever you laugh, like that will spread across the world and make everyone smile. When you're sad, no one can truly be happy. And like, cause I think tied with Milo's nothing matters inherently. I think he thinks he doesn't matter either. You know, it's never, it's never explicitly said, but that's sort of like the sadder undercurrent of the story. And I think that like, encouraging this idea that like everyone matters everyone has their place in the world and like it's as big or as little as you want it to be and it's also completely relative to your perspective that i think would be a really nice idea to pass on is that like it's up to you do the impossible make world fun you know yeah i really like that i hadn't thought about that they do really put an emphasis i think on intention and thought like their thoughts get them in trouble in the book you know it's yeah. not just what they do it's what they think and how they think it can either get them in trouble or get them out of trouble in some cases. Right. Like conclusions with can be. <laughs> I did like the line where it was like, can be showed up to everyone's surprise because he's as cowardly as can be, but he showed he can be just as brave. It's like, yeah, can be's here. Hell yeah. Okay. Thank you, Steven. All right. Well. <laughs> now you have to read the entire book to me while I fall asleep. <laughs> Oh, I stopped sinking by accident. It's time for bed. Um, thank you so much for having me on twice. This has been such an honor. And honestly, I think revisiting both Matilda, which we talked about last time, and Phantom Tilbo has been such a such a joyful experience. And I think I understand myself a little bit more <laughs> as well, for better and for worse. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, the cheapest therapy anybody ever has. <laughs> when I was 18, man, I was in eight bands. I like <laughs> punk. I had a green front flip and, like, loved the beach. Oh, my God. I thought you were serious for a second. No, none of that was real. <laughs> I was in zero bands. My hair was brown and not spiked. 
I do have a blonde patch on the back of my head, but it's natural. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a birthmark? Yeah, kind of. Tell me more. It gets brighter in the summer and everyone's like, do you dye it? I'm like, why would I dye like the back of my head? A splash. My mom says it's part of my halo, which is a very mom thing to say, but also kind of nice. Mean? I don't know. I guess I'm a fallen angel. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, we should cut this out. I don't want this to be my goodbye. You can never go back. You can never go home. Oh, yeah. Okay. I looked it up. Ready? Yeah. It's the title of a book. You Can't Go Home Again is a novel by Thomas Wolfe. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Published posthumously in 1940. Wow. 20 years before Phantom Tollbooth. I think You Can Never Go Home Again is supposed to be about, like, what you thought, like, what you remember your home to be like, especially, like, in childhood, is it's not going to be that way. Like, you can't go back to that that past idea of what your home was. But you can be 11 again. We're gonna say? No, it's just like I, I, yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks for having me. Bye. (laughs) I know I say this in a lot of episodes, but I really cannot express how grateful I am for everyone's kind words and thoughts and messages, people texting me, people talking in the TWG Discord. I don't have a lot of behind the scenes information for you guys. I mean, I think it's obvious that this was a quarantine project. The purpose of the show was always selfishly to, you know, have an excuse to read new books or watch new movies and then talk to my friends about it. I cannot overstate how happy it makes me to know that there are any number of listeners that want to share that experience. But honestly, at this point, I'm vaccinated, the weather has been beautiful, and I'm looking forward to seeing my family and friends in real life and being outside all day, biking or walking in a park or going to the beach. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can do so at 11 again podcast on Twitter at 11 again podcast or on my personal Twitter at Persia Verlin. P is in Peter, E R C I A, V is in Victor, E R L I N, N is in Nancy. And now you know what I sound like in every customer service interaction on the phone. I am honestly not too worried. I know I am leaving my listeners in good hands. 11 again is part of a network called The Worst Garbage Online. You can find more information about the network on theworstgarbage.online, which is a website, and check out the other shows, which are Into the Aether, a low-key video game podcast, which Steven co-hosts, and a very new and exciting show called Frog of the Week. Thank you again, and hopefully you'll hear from me soon. TWG, the worst garbage, the online.